Good morning. Good morning, Church 21. My name is Jeff. Uh, thank you for introducing me, Dwight. Yep, I'm from the West Island location, but I love getting to be here with all of you today. And thank you, Shayla, for leading us in that amazing song. And uh, thank you, Giovanni, for the scripture reading. Scripture reading is so amazing. It's an important part of our service, not just something that we like, get past in order to get to the sermon. I remember um, a nine-year-old boy from my neighborhood came to church one time for the first time he's ever been to church. And he said he loved it. I asked, what did you like about it? Was it the songs that we sang or was it like the fun games you played in the kids' room? And he said, no, my favorite part was when somebody got up and read the, the chapter from the Bible. I'm like, that's amazing because those words have more power than any of the words that, that I can say. That's God's words. So let's not underestimate that, um, but we do get to preach that word and what this has to do with us today. And so I need a lot of help today because um, as we've been going through the book of Mark, we're coming today to the crucifixion, this long, lengthy chapter. There's so much, so much to say that there's so much I can't say. And yet we rely on the Holy Spirit who's with us today to speak to our hearts to speak, speak through his words and through one another. So I'm going to pray for that help first. Jesus, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. I pray that you would um, speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts by your word, um, that we would be refreshed in the gospel, that you'd, um, Lord, honor and bless the, the thoughts of my hearts and, and the words of my mouth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, yeah, in Mark 15, we're looking at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. In, in chapter 14, we, from last week, we saw that there was kind of this unofficial trial that took place right after Judas betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Jewish leaders took Jesus aside, and they were questioning him all these things, and they... But that was an unofficial trial. That, w that didn't hold any legal weight. They were just trying to find some uh, charges that would kind of stick against him. But now it's the next morning. Official business could resume. It was a Friday, a new day on a Friday. It was the day before the Sabbath would begin. So there's a lot going on today. There's a lot going on that week in the festival, this eight days of uh, feast for the Passover. So there's a lot going on. But we, what we read today in chapter 15 is that the Jewish council meets together. That's called the Sanhedrin. Well, they meet together and they bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate for his decision as the Roman ruler. Um, so it was a very decisive day. It was the day that Jesus came for as he faced his trial and crucifixion at the hands of Roman and Jewish leaders. Okay, this is the day Jesus came for. But it was also... A decisive day for humanity. A very decisive day for humanity where guilt and debt, the guilt and debt of sin, was reconciled on the cross. So we're going to look at both sides of that issue. The things that Jesus experienced as he underwent that trial and faced the crucifixion of the cross, but also what that means for us today. What that meant for humanity in the big picture of what was happening at that time, what it means for us today. So we're looking at the, the cost of guilt and debt, and those things have a correlation that we're familiar with 
because like we don't like debt and we don't like being guilty. I think we can all admit we don't like debt and we don't like being guilty. And they're kind of correlated. We think of debt in terms of owing money, but even if we're guilty of something towards someone, something we did out of line or, or did against somebody, we can feel that sense of indebtedness, right? We need to kind of redeem ourselves. We need to make up for what we did. And so these are kind of the terms that we're going to be talking in today. And, and you know, sometimes we have this guilty conscience as we go about our day-to-day and we think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or I should have done this instead of that. And it's kind of like this volume in our mind that we kind of try to turn down all the time if we have that guilty conscience and we, we realize our faults and our failures and things we should have done, could have done, would have done. Um, so we try to turn down the volume on these things in our lives. And we do this in a number of ways. We try to really emphasize the good things we do, point out the good things we do, and it turns the volume down on the guilt. Or we try to, you know, pin the blame or point at the worst things that other people have done. And again, we get to turn the volume down on our, our guilt or our, our debt for others. Or we even try to do things. We love paying it forward. We love doing a good deed. We love kind of helping people out and, you know, doing a good cause, uh, doing something for a good cause. We all get to pat ourselves on the back, right? Um, we, we even try to kind of undo the wrongs that we've done through restitution. We try to dig out of our hole of debt socially. We try to do all these things. I experienced this recently, this concept. When I was at the grocery store and I, I grabbed a few things, I paid, and on my way out the store, when I was grabbing my bags out of the cart, I realized there's a, a pound of butter in my grocery cart that was kind of hiding there, and I walked out of the store without paying it. And of course, guilty conscience, oh, I should pay for this butter. In theory, I stole that pound of butter from Marche Adonis and had to go back in and make it right. And so I thought, well, this is an interesting opportunity. I talked a little bit with the cashier on my way out. Um, his name is Ibrahim. So I know, oh, this is, a, this is kind of a religious uh, name. Let me uh, talk with this guy for a moment about this situation with the butter. I go back in. And I confessed. I said, oh, I walked out of the store and I didn't pay for this butter. But I wanted to see, you know, where he's at. And I, I dropped this, this line from the Koran that says, I, I forgot to pay this butter. That's not what the Koran says. I forgot to pay for this butter, but God hears all things, knows all things. So I had to bring it back in and pay for it. So he took the butter, he scanned it, he swiped the card. But what's interesting, he was picking up what I was putting down. He handed me the receipt and he said, you are redeemed. Right? And many, many, many of us go through life with that concept of redemption. That we can go and pay for something. We, it's almost as if God is up in heaven with his golden abacus. And whenever we do something wrong, he slides a bead over in the column of our sins. But whenever we go back and make it right, he slides that bead back over in our favor. Right? And we, we hope that at the end of our life, our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Right? Some of us have this concept of redemption. But the cross says something differently. The cross turns up the volume on our guilt and our debt to a point that we can't ignore it. We can't dull it down. We can't turn it down. We can't point to our good works. We can't point to others' bad works. The cross really turns up the volume 
so that we can't ignore it. The brutal image of the crucifixion makes it clear that the wrongs of the world can't be bought out or dulled down by paying it forward or by pointing to others or pointing to our good deeds. We can't ignore the cost of the cross. The cross shows us that there was a heavy price to pay if God were to look at us and say, you are redeemed. So if we were to imagine this hypothetical trial where I stole the butter from Marsha Adonis, paying back that $7 was enough, payment enough, to justify my debt and my guilty conscience. The cost was proportionate to the debt that I owed. But in this real case of Jesus' trial and judgment and crucifixion, we ask, how was the cost of Jesus' brutal death proportional or reflective of the crime committed or the debt that was owed? Was it payment enough for redemption? And how does the cost of the cross reflect the reality of the debt, the responsibility of the debtor, and the right and righteousness of the master? That's what we'll look at today, at what Jesus experienced on the cross, and how that reflects on us today. So the first point here is how the cross, the, the cross kind of turns up the volume on the reality of sin. The cross reflects the reality of our debt the depth and the depravity of the sins that we face every day in us and around us. So one of the first questions that we see here, even as we look at the at chapter 15 in Mark, is uh, one, one of the questions that Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, asked of Jesus, actually asked uh, the Jewish leaders. He says, what evil did Jesus do? Right? There must be some tangible quantifiable evidence of evil that could bring such charges to have ended up with this degree of torture. What evil did Jesus do to pay the penalty of death by crucifixion? Verses 12 and 14 say that the chief priests call for Jesus to be crucified. They say, crucify him. But Pilate asks, why? What evil has he done? Verses 3 and 4 of the chapter we see that the chief priests accuse Jesus of many things. What evil did Jesus do? Pilate wants to know. We don't know what the, Jew, what the Jews uh, said in those uh, accusations where they accused Jesus of many things in verses 3 and 4. Maybe they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Well, Pilate doesn't care about breaking the Sabbath. What if they accused him of, you know, well, he said he would destroy the temple in three days he's going to build it up again well to Pilate, can he even really do that can he destroy this temple you have well he came in he turned over the tables he flipped over the chairs remember that well maybe he deserves a little punishment but Pilate wants to know what evil did he do to deserve crucifixion so we find that the main accusation is blasphemy that's what the jews have against jesus that's actually in the previous chapter in 14 uh, the high priest asked jesus Hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, I am. Huge words, right? And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's when the chief priest tore his garments. He said, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. He says, what is your decision? 
Well, they all condemned him as deserving death. So here's the small picture Our, on the surface, what we see. What evil did Jesus do that earned him the death penalty by crucifixion? According to the Romans, well, Jesus paid the penalty of death for nothing. He did no evil. He was innocent. Pilate could tell the chief priest brought Jesus to him out of jealousy, right? But Pilate handed him over to crucifixion to please the crowd, to secure his position. But according to the Jews, Jesus paid the penalty of death by crucifixion for blasphemy. It would be evil to make oneself equal with God. And that's what they brought against him. This man is evil for making himself equal with God. But there's a bigger picture here. Contrary to the Jews, Jesus committed no sin. He didn't lie. He, there was no evil. There was no blasphemy. He really, truly was the Son of God, right? But contrary to the Romans, he also didn't die for nothing. Jesus paid the penalty of death by crucifixion for sin. It was for our sin. It was for all the evils of human rebellion against God that Jesus died on the cross. So in answer to Pilate's question, for what evil is this man dying on the cross? For the evil of the sins of mankind. That's what Scripture shows us. That's what the Bible tells us in the big picture of the scope of history. All the way from the, the Old Testament, that's the first part of the Bible. Through the New Testament, all the writings after Jesus, Isaiah, one of the prophets, says this, that he the person anointed to represent God um, in the future, 700 years forward from when he wrote, he said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's a prophet 700 years ago saying he's going to, there's going to be this one who's sent by God to bear our sins. For what evil did Jesus pay? For our evil. But as the followers of Jesus looking back at the crucifixion put these events together, they, they rightly interpreted these things um, to, to mean just that. Paul writes this to his church in Corinth. He says, I delivered you the, the most important thing. The thing of first importance is this, that Christ died for our sins. What did he die for? Our sins. He says, I came to your city deciding to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. That's the most important thing. The writer of Hebrews says, look, Jesus became this high priest for us who goes before God. But back in the Old Testament, the high priest had to go every day and make a sacrifice for his own sins first in order to stand before God. Then he could sacrifice an offering for, to cover the sins of all people. But he says Jesus is different since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. And First John says, well, he's the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So the cross reflects the depth of sin and the depravity of sin by requiring the death of Christ on the cross 
for our atonement, to make us right with God, to pay for our sins. In other words, our sin was so bad that Jesus had to die. That's the bottom line, right? The cost of the cross, this immense value, reflects the depravity and depth of our sin. This is a very loud statement, though. To say that our sin matters that much, that it required Jesus' death on a cross, that that's the price for all the evils we've done, our knee-jerk reaction, again, is to kind of turn down the volume on that and say, well, maybe there's another way of looking at this. right? Does our sin really pose that big of a problem? We might often ask ourselves, or even in our culture today, Aren't we more enlightened than even to believe in a concept of sin, some might ask? What is the depth, really, and danger of sin that it requires such brutal death of innocent life, especially of the Son of God himself? Can't we, can't we just exchange that kind of idea for maybe a, a more lighthearted view of sin? You know, sin is really just the bad things we do that we don't really want to do, but if we try harder and be a better version of yourself and, you know, keep walking with these daily affirmations. We can be better people. We can be better than this, our culture might say. Or some might say, well, let's get rid of the social constructs that produce such labels like sin and judgment. Let's get rid of those categories, right? The Quebec Ministry of Education says religion is no longer the worldview through which we see ourselves and our world. So let's remove religious uh, teaching from the classrooms. Let's remove that worldview, that lens, because religion, they say, is really the reason for extremism and polarization and hate. Let's ban religious symbols and religious teaching because the logic goes, if there's no religion, then there's no sin. We remove the categories altogether. Sin is an arbitrary idea. Really, it only gains power the more you talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. It's not a problem. And so if we, if we go with that thinking, if sin is arbitrary, immaterial, inconsequential, well, then Jesus really died for nothing. If sin is not a big deal, then Jesus' sacrifice is just a huge, unfortunate waste of life. He could have he could have lived on and taught more people how to love each other, if that's the case. But the reality of the cross shows us, in all its gory detail, how sin really is more real than we want to think, but also so much deeper and darker than we can even imagine. The problem isn't just that we have you know, religious categories that expose sin right, and create judgment, polarization, things like this, i.e., you know, sin is only sin if we socially agree to those terms. Sin won't be a problem if we redefine what sin is, in other words. And the problem isn't just that we get caught doing something wrong. For example, sin is only sin when we negatively impact someone else, right, or act out on the thoughts or motives that are otherwise concealed safely within us. No, the problem of sin is, is bigger than our categories, it's bigger than our actions, it's deeper than this. The problem is that our very disposition, our nature, is contrary to God. Whatever we call it, no matter what we call it, whether or not we act on it, our hearts are not for God, but against Him. And that's 
the depth of the problem of sin. The bigger reality of sin is that sin shouldn't even exist. It has no right to exist, right? It's something that is, but it should not be. And it lives as a parasite that deprives everything that is good. It only exists as a contrary to everything that is good and right and true and deprives such things that God created. Sin is like this. I, I watched this. Uh, it's not even a documentary, but it's a show on Netflix, Dark Waters, something I'd recommend to watch. And, of course, watching that, now I'm an expert on, like, chemical ethics. And, you know, there's this chemical compound called PFOA. Sin is like PFOA. It exists in the bloodstream of nearly every living creature on earth. This is a chemical compound that was man-made, manufactured in the 1940s, right, to like produce stain-resistant, heat-resistant, and non-stick surfaces. Well, some of these things got out of hand, polluted our whole environment. And now this is in the bloodstream of 99% of every human being, right? It's beyond us. It's bigger than us. What can we do? Um, you don't have to freak out about it, okay? It's, uh, you know, it's a tolerable level that we've all been living with <laughs> for a while. But no, um, you know, in the manufacturing of these chemicals and, and in huge exposure to these, it, it really leads to cancer and death, some of the things we're still dealing with, right? The world is so broadly affected and deeply endangered by things that infect us universally. Sin is like that we've all have it in our very heart, in our bloodstream. It's been brought into us. We inherited it, right? Ever since, if you look at the beginning of the Bible and see Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis um, 1 through 3, we see, hey, Adam sinned. We've all sinned after that. We've inherited that sinful nature. So sin is a problem in that it has affected all of us. Um, we all have this. None of us are born without it. We can't not sin. We can't not do it, okay? It's, it's in us. It's our disposition um, from conception and birth. And, you know, it's not just that we inherited it against our will, but we, we prove it every day. We compound that, uh, that debt of sin every day. Um, the Bible says no one is good, not one. A uh, 17th century writer says this. He says, our virtues are often no more than vices in disguise. Someone else said, you know, we, we walk around, uh, interact with each other, kind of as wolves, tigers, bears with muzzles on because of the, really, some of the, one of the reasons we only restrain our sin is because of the consequences of the social ramifications, right? But our hearts would rather delve headlong into their own desires, right? So it's fully affected all of us, but it's also deadly. The problem of sin is that it is deadly. Sin's payout is death. Sin's minimum wage is death. The basic universal income that offers equally to everyone is death. Okay? The cost of sin is death. So the cost of the cross tells us that sin is a big deal. The excruciating pain and the gory death of Jesus on that cold, rugged cross reflects the depth the depravity, and the danger of sin, that this thing needed to be dealt with by God for us. Sin is real. It's not arbitrary. It is costly. It's not immaterial. It is powerful. It is not inconsequential. Jesus' total suffering was not for nothing. 
It was not a huge unfortunate waste. Jesus' sacrificial death propitiates sin. It atones sin. It makes all the wrongs right and accounts for everything that sin has stolen from God and his world and his people. On the, co- on the cross, he accounted for all the sins, past, present, and future. He died for the sinful condition, not just the things that we think and say and do, but, but for the, the sinful condition in our own hearts. He died for the individual sins that you and I do and for the, all the evils of mankind and our rebellion from God. So that's the first point here. What does the cross show us? What does the cross reveal to us? Sin is real, and sin is a problem. And that's why Jesus had to die. The second point here is that the cost of the cross reflects the responsibility of the debtor. So it shows the debt is real, but so is the debtor, the one who owes the debt. We might ask, is it fair that Jesus should die for our sins? Or, or is it fair to say that you and I should be accountable for all the little things we say and do? Right? If sin is this bad and Jesus died for our sins, then what is Christ's role and what is our responsibility in sin? Because for one, it doesn't seem possible for us to pay um, such a debt. But it also doesn't seem fair that Christ, that one perfect man, should take on all of our debt. How or why could we or should be, should we be responsibility for something so hopelessly beyond us and so helplessly deep within us? If we admit the guilt is on me, I'm the debtor, I'm the one that sinned, well, then we're immediately confessing to a problem that is so much bigger than we can handle, so much bigger than we can pay. Looking at the debt of our sin can feel like kind of looking at the debt clock. I don't know if you've ever been to like debtclock.com where you see like Canada's just $6 million every hour (laughs) climbing into debt. It's nothing compared to the U.S. But it's unfathomable. It's crazy. It'll give you a headache just to look at it. But our our debt, our sin is constantly scrolling like that. We can't pay for it. Might even seem unfair that we should consent to pay for a debt or take the guilt, bear the guilt for sin. We didn't, we didn't even want to inherit, right? We might ask. So how does the cross reflect such responsibility for us or any fairness in the crucifixion of Christ? Could there have been another way? So first, the cross demonstrates that because sin is real, real payment had to be made. We can't just, you know, take our debt to the bank and tell the bank, hey, those numbers are just theoretical, Right? That's just ink on a page. That's just pixels on a screen. If you could just highlight that and delete, then it'll all go away, right? We can't just tell the judge, you know, I'm going to have somebody else serve my sentence. I'm going to have this person do my community service. I'm going to have this person do my jail time. The world doesn't work like that. Real accountability and real justice for real injustice is required. Real payment for real debt, okay? So the reality of the debt... Um, But also the second thing the cross shows us is the responsibility of the payment is ours. The responsibility of that payment really is ours. We've already given it away a little bit that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But to get to the bottom of this, we have to confess 
the, the responsibility that that is ours. We can't just jump to that conclusion. It is man who must pay for man's sin. Our debt and our guilt is painted in all the vivid ugliness of the cross. Because you are not inconsequential. You are not insignificant. You matter. This is the second thing that the cross reveals about who we are. About what was exposed on there. You matter. The brutal cost of the cross shows us that your actions can't be swept under the rug. You can't just highlight, delete. Can't be swept under the rug. You matter too much. We as humans were created uniquely as embodied souls who bear the image and likeness of God. Yes, we're human. We're natural. We're akin to the earth and the animals in the way that we are created of the earth. Right? But we are embodied souls who are akin to God. Right? The animals are not made in the image and likeness of God. Neither the angels are made in the image and likeness of God. But you are made in the image and likeness of God. And so you matter. Everything that makes you, you matters. What you do with your humanity matters to God. It's like Woody tells Forky in Toy Story 4, you matter to Bonnie because her name is written on your popsicle stick feet. You can't throw yourself away. You're not trash. You matter to her. Right? Humanity is responsible as the representatives who carry God's name and image wherever we go. We all have been given a life and a will and a body and a soul given to manifest in obedience to our Creator. We've all been made to live for Him, to turn to Him, right? So our life is one of stewardship. We steward what we have. We take care of what we have. And we have responsibility for what we have. And we have accountability for what we've been given to the one who gives it and sustains it. So if sin is a debt, we are the ones driving that debt every day in a state of disobedience. We're the ones that are walking in this every day. And we do it all with the resources that God so graciously gives and provides and for us. Right? God, God wrote his universal law on all of us. Everybody bears his fingerprints. Right? So nobody... Nobody said, well, I didn't agree to be made in God's image. You are made in God's image. We are all accountable. Look, Daniel even told uh, uh, in the Old Testament prophet, he, he told King Nebuchadnezzar he didn't believe in God, God of, the Israel, of Israel, Yahweh. But he told him, he said, look, you've been following the wrong gods, and you're responsible for it. He says, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But he says, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Look, this applies to all of us. Like, we've followed all kinds of other gods, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You've been following other things, but you've always been made and meant to honor him by the merit of the life that you've been given given and sustained by his grace. We are beholden to honor him 
with all that we have and all that we are. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is what he demands of us. And in obedience, we, we steward our lives for him. But disobedience, we take what is his and we wield it against him. That's why we're accurately called in Scripture the enemies of God. We're, we're the children of God, but we become enemies of God by taking his image and slandering it, using it, hijacking it for our destructive purposes by sin. We're not for God, but we're against God. So the divine judgment and payment that we see in the cost of the cross shows that the responsibility of God's imagers, his image bearers, is indebted to God. Sin is not inconsequential, and your life is not inconsequential. The things that you think and say and do matter when we sin and when we obey. So it might be daunting to think of our own debt clock from all the times that we fell short and trespassed God's design. Jesus comes. He doesn't lower the volume. He, he blasts it. He raises the bar. He says, you've heard it said, you know, don't murder, but even to hate your brother is murder. You know, you've heard it said, don't cheat on your wife, but even window shopping at other women is equally wrong. You can't do these things even it's not just the actions we do but the very things that we say and think and feel against god's design we are responsible for the sins that are hopelessly beyond us and helplessly deep within us we are the ones who deserve the cost but the cost of the cross shows man's responsibility in our debt of sin but it doesn't stop there it also shows christ's role in stepping in our place. Jesus stepped up in our place. Even though the burden of debt is on us, he comes in and he takes it on himself because no man was qualified or capable of even atoning for our own sins, let alone that of humanity and all the evils we've done. But Jesus comes in as God incarnate, fully God but fully man, and he says, I stand as representative of humanity on the cross, taking all that sin for everyone else, as we've already read. Jesus, being the Christ, the Son of God, in that role, um, he submitted himself to the plan of exaltation by humiliation from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed together and conceived of this plan that would redeem humanity, that would redeem God's image, which is you and I, for the glory of God's name and the good of his image. So as man, he suffered unjustly in that trial and crucifixion that we read in Mark 15. But as God, he went to the cross to be exalted as redeemer. So one final point here. The cost of the cross reflects the right and the righteousness of the master. When we look at the reality of our sins, our responsibility as sinners, and the cost of redeeming the eternal guilt of our soul by Jesus' payment of blood in our place, the cost of the cross also shows us to whom the debt is owed, the rightful master. We see God's right as a just judge, 
and his righteousness as a God who justifies sinners. So this is the third thing that the cross shows us. Romans uh, 3 puts it this way, as Paul writes this, that the righteousness of God, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says there's no distinction. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over all the former sins of the past, but it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross shows us in all its detail how God is just. He doesn't sweep guilt under the rug, but he's the justifier of anyone who turns to Jesus with faith. So he holds both these, thing in his, these things in his own hands. Sin matters because it deprives the good creation that God made. You and I matter because mankind's creation and destiny and image by God and for God matters. And God, against whom we have sinned, and to whom debt must be paid, and by whom we are redeemed through Christ, matters. God is real, and God is good. Look, you might be here because you do believe in a God who is right to judge and righteous to justify. But you may be here not knowing if there is a God, and if there is a God, is he a good God? Is he a fair God? That's good. We welcome everyone here to the gospel, the good news of the cross. You could say everyone wants to know if God is real, right? That's what we are invited to find at the cross. That's what many people in that day were looking to Jesus at the cross to find out. Look at chapter 15 and verses 31 and 32, what the chief priests and the scribes wanted to see on the cross. It says they mocked Jesus to one another, saying, Well, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Is God real? Is God good? Is God just? Is he right? Is he righteous? These are all the questions demanded on the cross. In John chapter 18, another perspective on the scenes of Jesus' trial, um, Pontius Pilate turns to Jesus. He says, so you're a king. Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. And he says, for the purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks him, what is truth? Jesus says, it was for this reason I came into the world to bear witness. That means that everyone could see the truth. The chief priests, the scribes, they said, come down for the cross so that we can see and believe. Jesus tells Pilate, I came that you would see and believe. But he asked, what is the truth? The truth is God's word. Jesus says, your word is truth to God. Jesus came, came to bear witness to the truth, the truth of God, that God is real and God is good, that God is right and that God is righteous. The Jews wanted to see Jesus prove God to be true by coming 
down from the cross against all odds. Man, if you could just blow us all away and prove it once and for all by coming down from that cross, finally we'll see and believe. Yet it was Jesus staying on the cross against all odds that proves to us that he was God against all odds. He stayed on the cross and proves that God is real and God is good. Not by coming down from the cross. The day that we remember Jesus' crucifixion is Good Friday. That's what we're celebrating this Friday. That's what we're coming together this Friday to spend time sitting in that reality, to look further at the cross, because it is the goodness of God for sinners like you and I. The cost of the cross shows us the right of the master that he doesn't excuse sin, right? He is the ultimate creator. He's the independent king. He's the holy, eternal God. That he has the right of expectation to his glory and honor. That the cost of sin, which invades and depraves his goodness, order and law, has to be accounted for and has to be paid in full. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, right? His honor is worth that much. But also that the debtors who turn and wield the very breath of their lives against the giver of life, with all of our thoughts and words and deeds are indebted to him. He alone has that right. But the cost of the cross doesn't just reflect the right of justice from a master. It reflects to us the righteousness and relationship of the God who loves us and redeems us. The cross shows us how much God loves us. He's not just exacting debt from everybody who's kind of crossed him. No, he's showing that it's all been paid for by the representative of Christ, by his hand for us. Shows his love. So, a couple other verses here on this point. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he says, We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That says it all. God is not an impersonal God. He is the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. He is not an unjust God, but a God of justice and mercy and grace. He's not an angry God, but a God of love who is patient and kind and takes our sin and atones for it on the cross. He, even while we were still his enemies, he died for us through the sacrifice of Christ. So Jesus' cross bears witness to the truth that God matters, that his love for you matters that much that he won't let it go. You matter to him, and our sin matters to him enough to cost the life of Jesus on the cross. Colossians 2.13 says that you, when you were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He forgave us all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. That guilt, that debt that we love to turn down, but we try to do so in our own ways, he settled it all. He said he canceled the record of debt, Right? With all its legal demands, he nailed it to the cross. He loved us while we were still his enemies. 
These verses, though, they speak of a Jesus who is still alive, right? He's still alive. Because after his death on the cross, he didn't come down from the cross like the chief priests and the scribes wanted to, like this big, powerful uh, show. He came down from the cross dead. And it says that the centurion retrieved his corpse for Joseph of Arimathea. He came, he came down from the cross dead. He was buried for three days. But after three days, he rose from the grave with eternal life and the Holy Spirit and a home in heaven for everyone who turns to him in faith. So we'll conclude with this and we'll respond. Sin really matters. You really matter. And God really matters. This is the message of the cross. If you have not turned to God, you can turn to him today. This is called repentance. We don't have to dig out of our own hole of debt. We look to Jesus who did it for us and nailed our debt to the cross. Repentance is not religion, right? It's not restitution. Repentance is a relationship with the living God. It's not coming to your senses. It's coming to your Savior. It's not trusting in your own works, but it's trusting in his perfect work done for you in, his, in your place. But the other thing, when we turn to God, we don't just turn from a secular structural structure of moral restraints, right? Do this, don't do that, consequences for this or that, to a like religious structure of moral restraint. Someone put it this way, don't settle for a morally restrained heart when you can have a totally transformed heart. Right? We're not asking for morally restrained hearts who do the right thing out of obligation or to avoid consequence. We come for a new heart because that's where the depth and depravity of our sin sits. We can't just weed it out. We need a replacement. That's what Christ gives us on the cross. If you have turned to God, you can be baptized as a follower of Jesus with us this spring. Right? Marked as a follower of him out loud, proclaiming in full volume the glory of the cross that we've been redeemed by him. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, we can live in him today by the power of the Holy Spirit, following a Jesus who is not dead, but is alive. And so we, we don't live as we formerly used to live according to our flesh, but now we live in the Spirit. So we read these words. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's our call today. Go and glorify God in your body as we are embodied souls who are accountable to him. And then, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek then the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the life we now live as followers of Jesus with our minds and our hearts seated with him in heaven, waiting for his glorious return. So let's pray as we head out to respond to him in worship. Jesus, I thank you for the message of 
your love on the cross, um, showing us how our sin matters, how our life matters, and how your glory matters, such that it required your death on the cross. Um, it was no small thing, but Jesus, you being the perfect Son of God, you emptied yourself out for us to show us uh, the value and how worth um, our redemption is to you, that we all matter to you, not just uh, not just that our, our sin um, offends you, but that your heart yearns for us to be reconciled to you. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd reconcile our hearts to you, give us new heart of flesh, replace our heart of stone, that we can walk and live, not with our sinful disposition like against you all the time, but that we would be totally for you and with you. Pray that you do this by your Holy Spirit, by your power, Jesus, the same power that with which you rose from the grave. Continue to speak to us today, we pray. Amen.